Subject to Interpretation, a podcast which takes us deep into the topics that matter to professional interpreters. I'm your host, Maria Ceballos Wallace. Today, we're going to talk to my friend and colleague, Barry J. Roberts, about a hot topic which affects interpreters in the U.S. and beyond, dispute resolution. Barry J. Roberts is a former attorney with a master's degree in teaching of English as a second language and a master's in dispute resolution. She's also been a superior court administrator for various Southern California superior court And also her publications include Conflict Resolution Training for the Classroom, What Every Teacher Needs to Know from the University of Michigan Press. Welcome, Barry. Thank you, Maria. Happy to be here. Well, for full disclosure, you are the co-creator, along with myself and Marjorie Bancroft, of the course Foundations in Conflict Resolutions and ADR for interpreters. And that was the first ever online training of its kind to provide ADR training for interpreters. You and I didn't know each other before the pandemic, but since the beginning of the pandemic, we have worked together for many, many hours, I dare say. And that came about because you wanted to teach interpreters about mediation. Tell me about this. Well, this was a long standing dream of mine to teach interpreters about mediation based on various experiences I had, good and bad, uh, with interpreters during mediations I conducted. So let's get down to the basics and start talking about these things that you wanted interpreters to know about. And, and of course, we always begin with, um, with the golden rule, which is that you can't interpret what you can't understand. So help us understand mediation and uh, actually, the, let's start with the alphabet soup of mediation, which is ADR, CR, mediation. Tell us what all of these things are and why we should know, want to know about them. Well, it is an alphabet soup, but let's break it down. Um, conflict resolution is a general umbrella term that covers, guess what, resolving conflict. Um, it applies to almost any context, um, and the main t- the main Uh, tools are negotiation and mediation, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Now, when we apply conflict resolution to legal settings, we call it alternative dispute resolution. And the easy way to remember that is the A for alternative stands for alternatives to trial. So it's not only court settings, but it could be also special ed, um, maybe workers comp, other areas where we're trying to keep cases out of court. So the main tools for ADR are also negotiation and mediation, but also settlement conferences, sometimes mandatory settlement conference, and also arbitration, which is all I'm going to say about that now. You need a different guest, a different podcast to talk about arbitration. (laughs) So where do we encounter these ADR processes? Well, we encounter them in um, many areas of uh, courts in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, in areas of civil, family, probate mainly, and small claims, unlawful detainer evictions, those kinds of cases. Now, are they also, um, do we encounter some kind of mediation or conflict resolution used outside of the court system? Well, yes, indeed. Um, There are many community mediation centers throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. Um, And there are also um, specific 
mediation, ombuds kinds of processes in many industries. Who participates in a mediation and why would they want to do that? Okay, well, let me just say in a, what people should be picturing in a mediation um, is a neutral third party. And let me just say neutral is um, a cultural way of looking at mediation because other cultures have different ideas about who this third party ought to be, neutral or not neutral or somewhere in between. But for our purposes, it's a neutral third party who is helping the other parties in the dispute negotiate their dispute. So if you can imagine the two parties starting to try to negotiate with each other to resolve it, they can't agree on anything except for one thing, that they need help. So they agree to ask a mediator to help them resolve their dispute and do what they could not do on their own without one. Now, nope. it, go ahead. Yes. well, I was going to say that sometimes the, the neutral mediator is helping the parties to the dispute themselves Sometimes they're attorneys, if any, and sometimes the whole group, which is a lot, uh, which should be of interest to interpreters, how many people could be in the room. Now, just for clarification, this neutral party doesn't have any decision-making power in or any also vested interest in the outcome of this resolution. Exactly. So neutral and impartial and no decision-making power, exactly. Even if a judge is serving as the neutral third party, for example, in a settlement conference or in a mediation, maybe we have a lot of retired judges who are excellent mediators. They are not there in their role as a decision-maker. Now, we're in the middle of still, unfortunately, in the middle of this pandemic, and many legal processes have been moved to online processes. Even here um, in Georgia, where I'm based, um, there's a collaboration with one of our magistrate courts with the, one of the local um, law schools to provide mediators for landlord, tenant, and eviction cases. Um, online. And, and this is something that we're really going to see a lot of in any case all over the United States as um, this pandemic progresses. Have you seen the impact um, that this pandemic, or can you talk to us about the impact this pandemic has had on in-person and online mediations? Well, it's a fascinating situation that we're in because before the pandemic, um, there were basically two camps uh, one was, let's look to the future and start moving everything online. And the other was absolutely not. Mediation requires the personal face-to-face -to -face touch. We need to build rapport. We need to look into everybody's eyes. We need to feel it, you know, and, uh, you know, because mediation is an art and uh, as well as a science. And uh, there were people who said, no, absolutely not. It cannot work. Then the pandemic struck and it was either online or nothing. And very quickly, mediators have adapted beautifully and figured out ways to even make um, online remote mediation even better than face-to-face -face in some ways. So it's a very exciting and possibly silver lining, if I may say. Well, very early on into the pandemic, I myself, um, who are, I'm also a mediator here in Georgia, um, was given the opportunity to take an online course to learn more about ODR, which is online dispute resolution. Tell us what it actually looks like. Well, it probably will look very familiar to, to interpreters because, or, or to anybody, because it looks like a Zoom call, which we've all gotten used to with our families and friends in various ways. So there's the mediator, uh, there are the parties, 
there are the attorneys, if any, in their boxes. And the mediator can put people in breakout rooms for private caucuses, for example, or just to wait while the mediator is talking to others. Uh, they can share documents back and forth. Um, they could even use a, a whiteboard to brainstorm solutions. We get that far. So um, it, if you've taken an online course through Zoom or you've just talked to friends and family at Thanksgiving, it's, it's, it should be quite familiar to you how ODR would work. What about benefits or advantages that, um, that we encounter with this new modality? Well, it's interesting. We always say that um, mediation is an informal process and you can't get more informal than uh, being able to wear your pajamas, at least on the bottom, and being cozy at home, being comfortable in your setting. Um, it's very nice for parties who are, who are new to the legal process. They're not in some conference room uh, that they're not familiar with or, or a jury room, an empty jury room at the court, they're home. So that's one nice thing. Another nice thing is um, that we, at least in, I'm, I'm talking to you from Los Angeles, I'll just say one word, traffic. So it's so, much, it's so much more convenient for people to get together throughout Los Angeles and throughout the world. So those are two big advantages. The other is sometimes, you know, this face-to-face -face business is a cultural and personal decision and it, it doesn't always... Um, help move the negotiation mediation forward to be face-to-face. -face. The buffer can actually help in many cases. Yeah, it seems that sometimes when um, mediators actually use different tools in terms of how they deal with the different parties, sometimes they keep them together at the beginning of a session. Sometimes they know that there's a lot of animosity between them and they know that that's really not going to solve anything. So they actually work with them separately. So this in and of itself allows people to see each other, but at the same time does create that buffer that you're talking about. Yes, exactly right. And it, it's another um, new way of thinking about what we're trying to do in mediation in terms of how we bring people together to in, improve understanding. There's more than one way to do that. What about challenges, though? I, I imagine that, you know, the one thing we've seen with not just court, but medical interpreting and education is access to technology. People have different levels of access to technology and different and also different um, actual technical abilities in terms of their expertise and being tech savvy. What other challenges do we encounter when we move a mediation into an ODR setting? Well, one big challenge is related to the technology because if people need assistance, uh, that really impacts the confidentiality and the privacy and the safety of it. That is a huge issue. The other thing is that the mediator may lose some control. The mediator, we say the mediator controls the process, the parties control the outcome, the substance. And it's very important to a mediator to control the process which he or she may not be able to do online. Although maybe pressing a mute button uh, has some advantages we never imagined in face-to-face -face mediation, come to think of it. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's not a bad idea at all in certain circumstances. But let's <laughs> let's delve a little bit more deeply into this idea of confidentiality because I think that confidentiality part of part of understanding what in what a mediation is is understanding that a media in a mediation everything that happens in that mediation is confidential and in addition any communication between the mediator and the parties that is private has different has an additional level of confidentiality so now we have the possibility of having a mediation where I'm sitting at home and maybe there's several other people in that same location is that does that create issues of confidentiality yes it creates a huge issue the the main point about confidentiality is that matters that are discussed during a mediation for most of the time cannot be introduced at a court hearing or trial as evidence. So the mediator cannot be called in to testify. Parties cannot bring in evidence from the mediation. There are some differences throughout the country and throughout the world, but that's the general rule. So this is, this is sacrosanct in mediation because we need people to have the feeling of safety and security, um, emotional and practical, in order to have a, a, a successful mediation. Now you've been working in one aspect of mediation or another since 2003. You've worked during that time in community mediation, in legal mediation, and at some point you took an interest in interpreters and the um, service of interpreting for mediation. Why? Well, you know, before, before this, this uh, I was a teacher of English as a second language, as you pointed out, um, and when I was a new English as a second language ESL teacher, just by coincidence, I started to get interested in mediation. And during a course in mediation, I had a, had a, a real um, light bulb moment, uh, which was I realized that what was going on in mediation was really communication and increasing understanding. And guess what? What does an ESL teacher do? Pretty much the same thing. And in a moment, we'll talk about how what do interpreters do? <laughs> Very similar. So I became interested in language, the language of mediation, uh, because I started teaching it to my ESL students as a way to increase understanding and communication and the real need to use English in a real meaningful setting because I put them into conflict resolution role plays with people who spoke different first languages. So they, they had to use their English to resolve conflicts and through that, then we went backwards and learned the idioms and the grammar and the vocabulary in order to do that. So I became very interested in the language of mediation. So then when I became um, a, a, an alternative dispute resolution administrator um, for a court in Southern California, um, and I needed to work with an interpreter, I thought, oh my goodness, is this interpreter going to understand mediation? Well, is the, media, is the interpreter going to understand the context, the, the terms, the context, the concepts? I don't know. Turned out, no, <laughs> they did not. They were dutifully applying their court certified interpreter training to the mediation context, uh, which had some issues. So that's how I became interested directly in, in this topic. And can you discuss what some of those issues might have been so that we can maybe start to understand um, how 
interpreters might need to start rethinking a little bit, not entirely, but rethinking how they approach a mediation? Right. Well, understandably, a court-certified interpreter is used to a courtroom setting. The formality of it, um, the, the specificity, um, the accuracy. I'm not saying we don't need to be accurate in mediation, but it's a more informal, fluid, vague kind of feeling. You know, mediation, if you just walked by or heard it, it would just look like a conversation. But to the untrained ear and eye. But what's actually going on is a very specific process with a beginning, a middle, and an end, and various communication styles that are needed throughout. So it might start um, very specifically explaining what the process is. Then there might be some kind of openness. Um, the, first, the first part is just going to be a monologue. Uh, the mediator explaining what the process is to the parties, not a lot of interaction. After that, there's nothing but interaction and interruptions, which is really, I have learned, not an interpreter's favorite situation. Uh, but mediators are fine with it. <laughs> we like the give and take, the flow. We like to have venting. We like to get things out. So we have a lot of openness. And then when we brainstorm options for solutions, again, we have a lot of openness, free flow uh, conversation, back and forth, interruptions. And... Then at the end, we have to go back to a very specific, concrete uh, communication style in order to be very specific about what any kind of written settlement agreement would look like. Hopefully we get to that point. So there are, there's a lot of variety uh, in communication styles that are needed. Plus there's mediator speak, a special way that a mediator might address the parties and expect the parties to address. And I, I don't know how any person who has not been trained in that to understand it would, would be able to um, interpret accurately without really understanding the purpose, the goal, the language. So there's several things that you wanted to teach interpreters, right? You wanted to teach them about the terminology. And interestingly enough, there is um, certain types, cer certain terminology in mediation that is also similar to terminology that we use as interpreters, but that don't have the exact same meaning or that there are some nuances which interpreters need to understand. Can you talk about some of those? Well, I think one might be active listening. Is that a term interpreters use? It, it's a term. It's a term that interpreters do use as, as um, I guess, in a more academic fashion, in terms of um, paying attention actively to what is being said, so that the interpreter then understands it and then is able to render it into the other language. That's that's how I would think that uh, active listening is used in in our context. Right. So in mediation, active listening is probably more active and more participatory because pretty much anything a party says, a mediator is going to try to paraphrase it and check to see if that's what the person really meant. So this is, this is a kind of mediator speak. So it sounds like you're saying that interpreters do use it, but in a slightly different way. Have I got that right? So that, that's a kind of active listening. Have I got right. that right? 
Yeah, you got that okay. right. We use we really use it more internally than we use externally. Our use of active listening is not displayed externally when we render our interpretation. Our interpretation already includes the idea that we have processed that information. And of course, if we're doing active listening and at that point we feel that we are unable to render that because we don't understand it, they then we will ask for clarification before we render an interpretation as opposed to a mediator who listens and then either paraphrases or maybe uses other techniques to then verify whether they understood or, or what the person had said. Right. So maybe this is something like a false friend. <laughs> we use active <laughs> listening. <laughs> we use active listening in similar but not quite the same ways. The other thing that an interpreter needs to know is that when, when a, a mediator is paraphrasing, what they just heard the party say, it may not be what the interpreter understands paraphrasing to be because there could be a spin to reframe it. Sometimes we say to take the poison out because it's really not helpful to paraphrase a very uh, negative, uh, accusatory, aggressive statement. That's not gonna help, although it might be accurate. Uh, the, the mediator is going to try to spin it, reframe it to move the mediation forward. So an interpreter needs to, might be scratching uh, his or her head. That's not what the party just said. Nevertheless, because of the mediator's magic, it actually sounded right to the party. So for example, um, if, if a party says, you hate me, and the mediator says, it sounds like you really need to be loved and respected, and the party says, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, has the interpreter been along for that ride? So it's possible the interpreter may be scratching their head going, um, wait a minute, I just interpreted you hate me. And now <laughs> this person is just completely spinning it around into it another, in another direction. But the interpreter does have to go along for that ride and just, just really be, be flexible to the nuance of mediation. Exactly. So when working with interpreters, um, what was the thing that stood out the most to you? Well, I have to say, having never worked with an interpreter before, my very first experience was that the, now I know this is wrong now. I know the interpreter was trying to help me, but it seemed like the whole thing was about the interpreter and I was supposed to serve the interpreter. I know, strike me dead. I know that's not what was happening, but I, I got a lot of rules about what I was supposed to do and not do, and I violated all of them, which just, <laughs> speaking of conflict resolution, we needed one between us. So uh, what, what I now see is the interpreter was trying to do his very best to provide an accurate uh, interpretation in the context, which he didn't know anything about. Uh, so the thing that struck me is that we needed to have a chat beforehand. Now I understand that that chat is called a briefing where I explain what I'm about to do and the interpreter explains uh, his job and code of ethics. Believe me, I had no idea there was a code of ethics for interpreters, that was an eye opener. And that's another thing our fields have in common, uh, a very strict adherence to a code of ethics. Um, in a briefing, I would have liked to have heard uh, Ms. Roberts, you need to slow down and give me a chance to uh, interpret what you're saying. Um, I would have liked to have heard where he was planning to position himself and why, his need for breaks, just about everything I would have 
appreciated learning beforehand. And I would have appreciated him understanding a few of the things we've talked about today. It's, it's important, for example, um, you know, one of the things that interpreters um, should be familiar with before they walk into a mediation air really is really the structure of a mediation, which includes, you know, an opening statement, which may be an ad lib statement, but is generally based on some very, very specific guidelines. Well, that's exactly right. And actually, that is a good way for an interpreter to um, familiarize him or herself with the whole process, because that is where the mediator lays out uh, how the day is gonna go, or the hour, as the case may be, uh, and um, what the parties can expect, what the guidelines are. Uh, and so that, that is um, pretty much standard uh, throughout mediation. Although there are so many variations in what mediators do, I just wanted to make that point that mediation does not mean the same thing to every mediator. However, there generally is some kind of opening statement um, along with the need for everybody to sign a mediation confidentiality agreement. So these are part of the rituals of mediation uh, that interpreters can expect. And a quick way to learn about it is to just go online and look for mediators opening statement. You could probably find some in writing and probably find some videos showing what it looks like. That would be a quick way to, to learn a lot about mediation. So Barry, what can interpreters do to prepare in advance to interpret in a mediation? Well, the best thing they can do, and I know it's a lot to ask, is to take a real mediation training. Uh, it's maybe 30, 40 hours, so it may be too much to ask, as I said. But then you would know pretty much everything a mediator knows, and you would figure out exactly what you need to do on your own. Um, if that's not possible, um, you could look online for various videos so you could at least see what it looks like and get the vibe of a mediation, um, as well as some of the language and concepts. Um, if you could only read one book, as I mentioned, Getting to Yes would be a, a book I suggest. It's not specifically about mediation, but it, it provides the background. It, it helps you understand what's, what the mediator is trying to do. Um, there, we also have a Facebook page, Interpret ADR, where you can connect with other interpreters who are interested in this field. And finally, you might want to take a, a training specifically for interpreters in alternative dispute resolution and mediation. They're hard to find, but they do exist. As a matter of fact, for all of our listeners, um, as I said earlier, we, um, we barely scratched the surface with regards to um, mediation, ADR, and also the role of the interpreter in mediation. So we're happy to announce that Barry and I will be teaming up together this coming April through the De La Mora Institute of Interpretation. And we're going to be teaching another course, a 12-hour course this time, of foundations of ADR and conflict resolution for interpreters. So like I said, classes start in April. We hope to see you there. And and it's, as always, Barry, thank you so much for joining us and filling us in on this very, very interesting field. I always learn something from you, and I'm really glad that we have had a chance to have this conversation today. Thank you, Mary. It was my pleasure.
Thank you for joining us here on Subject to Interpretation. We hope this podcast has enriched your journey along this fascinating field of interpretation. If you're watching us on YouTube, please share your comments with us below. And if you're listening to us, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our weekly episodes. Take care.